Hello, and welcome to Kick Out 299. My name is Rachel. My pronouns are they, them, and I am very excited to enter the jumbo zone. And I'm Alicia. I use she, her pronouns. Today, we are turning our focus to Jumbo Saruta, the unparalleled former ace of all Japan pro wrestling. An incredible man with a legacy that permeates Puro to this day, we will take an in-depth look at his life and career and then discuss two contemporary feuds where you can see some of that legacy at play, Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kazuchika Okada and Jun Akiyama and Konosuke Takeshita. This is the 10th episode of Kickout and we could not imagine spending it any other way than honoring Jumbo Saruta. So let's get into it. Tomomi Saruta was born on March 25, 1952, in Makioka, Yamanashi, Japan. His parents, Hayashi and Sunia, lived on a grape, and I believe there was also some maybe peaches and pears. It was like an orchard, and they made their living as farmers. Tomomi is a gender-neutral name in Japan, and his mother apparently named him this because when he was born, she thought he was small and looked like a girl. But Tomomi grew to be 6'5", which was extremely rare for Japan at the time, so her concerns about his size were unfounded in the end. Throughout his childhood, Tomomi and his brother participated in very normal household chores and also farm duties, which would play into some of the eventual mythos surrounding Saruta, such as his legendary strength. And there is that kind of mythos at play when you're sort of researching someone like Saruta, that's going to happen when you're researching any figure in pro wrestling, really, but it definitely comes into play when you're looking through some of the earlier details around Saruta. And I do just want to mention one of my sources Kinch Stalker, who has a blog called from Milo to Misawa.wordpress.com. And he posted some great translations on the pro wrestling only forums. And some of the details we'll talk about today do come from his great work. And you can check it out at those places. So Tomomi participated in sports in primary, junior high, and high school. He played baseball, which he did enjoy, but said that due to nearsightedness, that baseball became harder to play because he apparently had a hard time tracking the ball. He switched to basketball instead, which really benefited someone of his size, even when he was younger. This has been disputed by a friend, though, who said that Tomi lacked the explosiveness needed to be a good base runner. So again, there's some of that, <laughs> that mythos in play there, but his basketball team went undefeated in the Yamanashi Prefecture. He also participated in rugby through phys ed class and eventually the school's rugby club. So the bus service in his town was very unreliable. And as you can imagine, for someone of his height, um, riding the bus was just really uncomfortable due to those low ceilings. So Tomomi had to bike to school during his high school years. The roads were unpaved gravel and largely uphill. And so he attributed his endurance to having to make these frequent trips to and from school. And now Tomomi's Olympic dreams began during his junior high years. The 1964 Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo were culturally significant, and he later recalled being moved watching his countrymen in their red blazers during the opening ceremony. Jumbo knew he wanted to be an Olympian, and as we're going to discuss, this was a pivotal dream for him, and he did what he could to get there. During the summer vacation of his sophomore year of high school, Tomomi actually went to Tokyo and passed a sumo apprenticeship exam after being evaluated by the Asayama stable. And this is something that I didn't know anything about until I started doing some more of this research. But Tomomi's uncle, who was a retired sumo wrestler, intervened and ultimately his apprenticeship was canceled. But the Japan Sumo Association doesn't actually have any documents to support Tomomi's extremely brief stint in sumo. 
but he would go on to use this experience as part of his mythos saying that the people in his small town looked down on him for not pursuing a career in sumo and that his other athletic pursuits were a way to vindicate himself and Suniyoshi Saruta Tomi's brother after his passing <laughs> has some serious doubts on that part of his younger brother's story saying Tomi was just a child he didn't care about anything so that's kind of funny but he did participate in a sumo tournament after a week of practice while still in high school and came in third place so he was really an extraordinarily gifted athlete who could start doing a sport and pick it up immediately and just be really really talented with it there's almost a feeling of like a folktale hero in how his uh, kayfabe and shoot life sort of blend together. That's really interesting when you use the word mythos. That's really what it feels like. Oh, yeah. And that's that's a perfect way to just describe him, actually. And I think you do kind of see that all the way through to the end of his career. Now, I do highly recommend people listening to this go and listen to Justin Nipper and Fumi Saito's podcast, Write That Down for Fight Game Media. They have a two-part episode on Jumbo that I had a hard time finding through Spotify and Apple, but I was able to find it on YouTube. And Fumi, for those of you who are not familiar, is a pro wrestling journalist. And he said that Jumbo told him that he wanted to be a professional wrestler from the sixth grade. I was able to find that during his high school years, Tomomi recalled seeing B.I. Cannon, Antonio Inoki, and Giant Baba's tag team on TV, and Giant Baba apparently left an impression on him. And I have some doubts about whether or not this is also a little bit of kayfabe, but it's it's kind of a nice story, so I'm just going to, to leave that with you all. But apparently that left, you know, Baba left an impression on him. After he graduated from high school, Tomomi enrolled at Chuo University in April 1969 and chose to pursue a degree in law. He originally started out playing basketball, but due to Japan's national team's initial hesitance to join the next Olympic Games and the country's lack of a professional league, he looked to change sports because, again, his goal is to be an Olympian, and he's going to do what it takes to be an Olympian, even if it means changing sports. He initially tried to join the judo team, but was rejected and ultimately agreed that pursuing it wouldn't be wise because he had gotten too late a start to be successful enough to become an Olympian in judo. Tomomi eventually settled on Greco-Roman wrestling and did not join the Chuo wrestling team right away, though he would join the team for his senior year of college. And there's, a, again, a, a lot of story attached to that as well. And again, some, some mythos of Saruta coming through on that. But he began training with a coach from the Japan Self-Defense Force First, whose name was Shojiro Shimada, as other members of the Chuo team were training with the JSDF as well. And Tomomi was ultimately extremely successful as a wrestler in a relatively short amount of time, going on to enter many tournaments and meddling in them. After only a year and a half of training, he had won two national championships. Tomomi would realize his dream of becoming an Olympian during the 1972 Summer Olympic Games in Munich, Germany. He ultimately didn't medal and was eliminated from his Greco-Roman division after the second round, but this was remarkable. I mean, he had started Greco-Roman wrestling towards the end of his college years and then went on to become an Olympian like he had wanted to be. Um, so kind of extraordinary. There's, I think, very few athletes who have a track record like Saruta. Yeah, that blows my mind at how late he started and still managed to make the Olympics at all. That is very, very impressive. So absolutely no shame in him not meddling because I can barely even get my mind around it. Like you said, just incredibly gifted athlete. Now there's a few different stories surrounding how Saruta met Giant Baba and was courted toward all Japan after the Munich Games. But for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to sort of tell one tract about how he was able to meet Baba and get into all Japan. He was one of four wrestlers that Baba was scouting at the time. Baba would have been very interested in Jumbo for his size and athleticism. 
Two of those four wrestlers, Baba Scow, that ultimately declined spots with All Japan. Another would enter wrestling, but ultimately through New Japan Pro Wrestling, Mitsuo Yoshida, who would later become known as Ricky Choshu. And we'll go back to discussing Choshu momentarily as he becomes very important to Jumbo's career later on. New Japan was interested in Tomomi as well. And according to Fumi, he would have been one of the first few wrestlers that Baba and Inoki would have fought over. And that includes Choshu as well, who also sort of disputes that later on. So we've got a lot of, a lot of things going on here. But what may have tipped the scale in Giant Baba's favor was that he visited the Saruta family home and spoke to Tomomi's parents, which Inoki and New Japan ultimately did not do. So at the press conference on October 31st, 1972, where it was announced that Tomomi would be joining All Japan, he became known as wrestling's first salaryman wrestler. This was a bit of a departure for the time period because due to the more traditional sumo hierarchy that influenced Purosu, you would normally hear a wrestler say that they had accepted an apprenticeship or an invitation to join a company. Saruta said, I thought that All Japan Pro Wrestling would be the best company for a big guy like me to work. I chose the company of Baba-san, who I respect. And this was reported as, I will work for All Japan Pro Wrestling. So just that difference in the language of how he announced that he would join All Japan really made an impression and gave him a little heat with fans, among others, which we'll continue to go into detail about. Tomomi was immediately given the nickname Wakadaisho, which translates to the young ace. This certainly created some rather weighty expectations for Saruta, who would need to follow in the footsteps of people like Riki Dozan, Giant Baba, Antonio Noki, with that sort of moniker. After that announcement, Giant Baba quickly sent Saruta off to train in Amarillo, Texas, with the famous Funk family, so I'm talking specifically about Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk. Tomomi met Stan Hansen and Bob Backlund training with the Funks as well, and it was Stan that gave him the nickname Tommy, and he would perform in America as Tommy Saruta. Tomomi would share his instant noodles from Japan with him, and Stan liked them so much that he ate some without telling Tomomi, so it's kind of a fun anecdote to share with you guys about Stan Hansen and uh, Saruta. Dory Funk Sr. said of Saruta, this man has already laid the groundwork to become a wrestler. All he needs now is more experience. And Dory Funk Sr. and Stan also marveled at how strong he was for having what they considered a slender amateur wrestler's physique. At that time, Saruta could already bench press double his body weight with no trouble at all, really. On March 24th, 1973, Tomomi made his professional debut in Amarillo against El Tapia, and two months later, on May 20th in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he was chosen to challenge Dory Funk Jr. for the NWA World Heavyweight title. In October of 1973, Tomomi returned to All Japan one year after the announcement he had joined All Japan. He would have a debut match on October 6th against Moose Morawski at Korokin, and that he would go on to win. He was thrust into the spotlight in a big way only two days later when Giant Baba and Tomomi tagged together in a match for the NWA International Tag Team Championships against reigning champions and Tomomi's mentors, the Funks, in a best two out of three falls match. This was booked for October 9th, 1973 at Kurame Kokugikan in Tokyo. Tomomi was really the super rookie by Baba's design right out of the gate. He wasn't someone who was working opening matches in his rookie year, but main eventing. He also won a lot for a rookie, which is really unusual and bucked tradition. Kinstalker mentioned on the forums that in his second year, Tomoe won 90% of his matches, which is highly unusual for a rookie. I can't even think of anyone in just over the last couple of years of me watching Japanese wrestling where I can recall any new wrestler winning nearly that much in their first few years of wrestling. So it's just kind of incredible. Not even people considered like super rookies, like say uh, Utami Hayashita. I can't think of having a record like that. It's, it's crazy. It's unheard of. Before we get back into the match against the Funks, I do want to mention that being an Olympian and a star athlete didn't actually help Jumbo or make him a popular wrestler right away. 
He looked like someone who had had everything handed to him. Older fans kind of resented that he flew in the face of the traditional hierarchy of Purasu, and that goes back to their origins in sumo. Baba's method of making Jumbo a star was to have him skip the line on some really common aspects of being a rookie, like waiting on your seniors or carrying bags. Jumbo didn't do any of that, unlike his peers, and this was Baba's choice, not Jumbo's. Atsushi Onida was one of Jumbo's closest peers when they were training together and, and just kind of coming up in all Japan. And Onida had to do all of that. Onida was washing Baba's back. Onida was carrying Baba's bags, but Jumbo didn't have to. But again, this was Baba's choice to make Jumbo a star, not Jumbo's. We know how prestigious the Olympics were in Japan and how prestigious the title of Olympian is, but it did not make Jumbo popular despite how obviously gifted he was as a wrestler. There are some interesting cultural factors at play and why Tomomi wasn't immediately so well received, and he would spend the first few years of his career definitely sort of dealing with this issue. But to get back to the match, Baba was criticized for choosing Tomomi as his partner and pushing him so strongly as a new wrestler coming back from excursion for all of the above. Kintaro Oki, Omonosuke Ueda, Gantetsu Matsuoka, those three guys left the company in response to Baba's decision. This is actually a much longer story and something I recommend people look up when they're finished listening to this podcast. If you want some more background on some of the politics going on backstage in all Japan at this time between Baba and some of these former members of the JWA. But this tag match against the Funks is incredibly significant as solidifying his position as number two in the company behind Baba. He scored a pinfall over Terry Funk with a bridging German suplex, wowing the fans in attendance, and the match would ultimately end in a draw, but it's a star-making performance for Tomomi. Regarding Tomomi's technique, he came back from training with the Funks working a whole lot like them. So that gave him this very unique hybrid American influence style compared to his peers, which really stood out. He came back with four suplexes from Texas, a double arm underhook, a belly to belly front suplex, a side suplex, which we know now more as a gut wrench suplex and a bridging German suplex. Fumi noted that Jumbo's perfect technique might've contributed some of the fat fan heat amongst the other things I mentioned. He was just too perfect for fans during that time period. And that's so interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit later where we see this again. We see these perfect wrestlers, these super rookies getting heat for going straight to the top. And uh, I'm sure that the listeners can think of some names right off the top of their head. And we will definitely address those names in a little bit. But even right from the get-go, you can see some of the footprints of where he has left in in Pro Resu. I think that's really amazing. It is. Absolutely. We'll definitely, uh, so many names come to mind and we're definitely going to talk about them yeah. later on. <laughs> Don't want to spoil, even though we've already mentioned, but yeah. There was a push to change Saruta's ring name from his given name to something else. A fan poll was created and it was announced on October 27th, 1973 that the fans chose Jumbo. So he would go forward and be known in the ring as Jumbo Saruta. The word Jumbo was chosen because this poll was happening when Japan was creating its first Jumbo Jets. And this was really big news at the time. And of course, due to Jumbo's size, he was working with Baba at the time, of course. So you have giant Baba and Jumbo Saruta. I love this so much. This is one of my favorite factoids. Can you imagine having a fan poll these days to decide like a wrestler's entire name? Like this is their entire life. I can't. And as I, as we were joking last night before we recorded this, like Baba was the type where for the most part, like you debuted in like whatever color you chose. And that was your color for the rest of your life. So I don't know if he would have made Jumbo stick to whatever name came out of the the poll for better or worse, but I don't know. That's a lot to put on a fan poll, I think. 
I said that last night where deciding on faction names or tag team names or even the main event of Wrestle Kingdom via fan poll, that's absolute child's play compared to this. You are deciding the wrestler's entire career based on what airplanes are being made at the time. (laughs) That's, That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So by February 1975, Jumbo would go on to win his first title alongside Giant Baba, and this was the NWA International Tag Team Championship. Their first reign would last until October 1976 for a total of 631 days. Now, Jumbo would win his first singles title on October 28, 1976, and that was the NWA United National Championship at the climax of a tournament to crown a new champion against Jack Briscoe in a two out of three falls match. The history of this belt is really interesting, and there's a great article on Jumbo's life and career by Ian Douglas for ProWrestlingPost.com that touches on the importance of this championship to Jumbo's career, but the NWA United National Championship was originally supposed to become the Anoki belt when Anoki won it while he was still in the JWA, just as the NWA International Heavyweight Championship was known as the Giant Baba belt. However, Anoki left the JWA to form New Japan, and eventually the JWA went out of business. Baba brought the United National Championship to All Japan in August 1976, and from then on, it became known as the Jumbo Saruta Belt. Jumbo would go on to hold the United National Championship six times between 1976 and 1989. Jumbo won the Match of the Year award from Tokyo Sports for several matches during the span of years, including his 1977 title match against Neil Mascaros and his 1978 title match against Harley Race. He also won awards for Outstanding Performance and Best Tag Team with Giant Baba. By his third year, Jumbo had challenged every NWA World Heavyweight Champion of that era, people like Harley Race, Ric Flair, Bill Robinson, Ted DiBiase, among others. What they were really doing during this era is that every win that Giant Baba had gotten off of these American superstars, they gave those wins to Jumbo Saruta as well, really trying to establish that Jumbo was the, the upcoming ace behind Baba, right? Also of note is that Jumbo had a very famous trial series that occurred in 1976, and this was all part of Baba's plan to get Jumbo over and further establish him as a single star. He wrestled in order, Vern Gagne, Russia Kimura, Terry Funk, Bill Robinson, Bobo Brazil, Abdullah the Butcher, Chris Taylor, Harley Race, and Kentaro Oki. He ended with three wins, four draws, and two losses. His only losses were to Funk and Race. Yeah, that blows my mind that he won it all, let alone having more or less a winning record. Like draws are draws, but he had more wins than losses. And that's absolutely insane in a trial series for me. Yeah, it's definitely very unusual when you look at the history of trials, I suppose, in Japan. And to give some context, I suppose, to those draws, this was just very common of that era because you had all these different superstars facing each other and no one wants to lose. So there's a lot of draws, there's a lot of countouts, double countouts, and a lot of dusty finishes, a lot of very indecisive finishes. So it's just so common of that era. And you'll see it with Jumbo, you'll see it with a lot of like of the bigger wrestlers from that era. They just, you know, when, when you're facing, when it's Japanese stars versus American stars, you'll see that, but you'll even see that with some of the stars within Japan in this, in the Japanese system too. It's just very common to see that stuff. So going into the eighties, Giant Baba was no longer working the main event. He was doing six-man comedy tags before intermission, and Jumbo was the number one guy now and really inherited the title of ace from him. 
And this is remarkable because before that was something that was really passed down between wrestlers. Giant Baba only became the ace when Ricky Dozen passed away and Inoki had to leave the JWA to step out of Baba's shadow and forge his own path forward. In this, Jumbo really became what we can recognize today as the first modern ace. With this came a change in attire. Under the funks and throughout the 70s, Jumbo wore red trunks and had a lot of red, white, and blue in his overall getup. Just a real baby-faced look. But by 1981, Jumbo would start wearing black trunks and black ring boots, which was really the ace look. He also started using the Luthez backdrop, which is a belly-to-belly -belly back suplex as his finisher. And according to Fumi, the story is that Luthez came to teach Jumbo how to do the backdrop. I spent a lot of time trying to find like concrete evidence that Luthez was physically there and taught Jumbo himself. <laughs> if anyone has some evidence of that, I would love to see it. I'm, you know, I just, I'm just wondering how much of kayfabe that was, but I would be fascinated to see it. So if you do have some information on that, please um, reach out to us at kickout299 because I want to see it. The mythos continues. The mythos of Jumbo continues, but from 1984, Jumbo's character really starts to change, and this is because of Ricky Choshu and his faction, Ishin Gundan. Ishin Gundan actually started in New Japan when Ricky Choshu turned heel on Tatsumi Fujinami. And I'm not going to go into too many details here because we have to cover Ishin Gundan in our upcoming New Japan Factions episode. And the odds of us covering the Choshu and Fujinami feud is also very high at this point. But for the purposes of telling Jumbo's story, it is important that we talk about Ishin Gundan a little bit today. So Choshu turns heel and forms Ishin Gundan, aka Revolutionary Army, in 1983 after turning on Fujinami because he was furious he wasn't selected for the inaugural tournament for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, and he didn't want to be second to Fujinami for the rest of his career. He's joined by Masa Saito and Killer Khan, and then others like Animal Higuchi, Yoshiaki Yatsu, Isumu Taranishi, and Kuniaki Kobayashi, and then also Tiger Chiguchi, who was also known as Kim Duck, joined. There was a financial dispute going on in the background of New Japan Pro Wrestling that caused a lot of issues and allowed for Ishin Gundan to leave the company and incorporate themselves under the name Japan Pro Wrestling. They struck a deal with Channel 4, which allowed them to work in all Japan Pro Wrestling, and Baba didn't actually want them but this wasn't his decision. Channel 4 and Nippon Television had made the decision to bring them in. Where this becomes very important for Jumbo is that up until this point, the booking format for All Japan had been Japanese wrestler versus big American or Gaijin wrestler, as we've discussed previously. This was a huge part of how Baba was trying to get Jumbo over as a single star. Jumbo had been booked to beat and contend with the biggest American superstars at this point. But this angle with Ishin Gundan forced Jumbo to start working against Japanese heels, and it changed his style completely. He started working more like a monster in the ring, and the role he took on was that of an enforcer. Jumbo, and eventually Genichiro Tenru, who was coming up behind him, had to save All Japan from Choshu and Nishin Gundan, who were a heel faction, but definitely not what Western fans would consider a heel faction. They were just outsiders, and Ricky Choshu was a cool heel. And we'll talk about this in the upcoming episode, but I cannot understate what a massive draw Ishin Gundan and Riki Choshu in general were to the point where New Japan was really suffering from their loss. So having Choshu there and getting eyes on Saruta, it was an absolutely really huge deal. Absolutely, because fans started to really come around to Jumbo and get behind him during this angle because they were able to take him seriously as a tough guy in his matches against Ishin Gundan. He was showing a lot more emotion and getting the crowd behind him in a way that had eluded him when he was the perfect baby face working with Giant Baba. Now, that salary man label that had been given to Jumbo when he joined All Japan actually came back up during this feud, causing some heat between him and Choshu. 
Before the pair's November 4, 1984 Broadway, Choshu said of Jumbo, that guy is not a real pro wrestler. He is just a salaryman wrestler. After the match, however, he told the media, if it had been a decision system like boxing, I would have lost, which is a fascinating comment. Their match won the 1985 Tokyo Sports Best Match of the Year Award. During this Ishin Gundan angle around 1983, Jumbo and Jinichiro Tenryu began tagging together as Kakuru Kombi. There's so much we can say about Tenryu, and we did cover a little bit of his history when we talked about Revolution in episode 9 of Kickout on All Japan Factions, but Tenryu was a former sumo wrestler. And as I mentioned before, coming up after Jumbo, he was very much positioned as number two to Jumbo, something that would be a constant source of ire for Tenryu. But their tag team partnership is an important part of this era, and this gives way to their rivalry, which really sets up the King's Road era of All Japan, and is just a seriously fantastic series of matches. As a tag team, they won the NWA International Tag Team Championships twice, once in 84 and once in 87. Now, Ishin Gundan eventually left All Japan for New Japan in 1987, but Tenryu was very inspired by Choshu standing up to Fujinami and just Ishin Gundan in general. He did not want to go back to working number two to Jumbo, and he didn't want the format to go back to Japanese wrestlers versus American wrestlers either. Tenryu broke up his tag with Jumbo and started the tag team Ryuhara-gun with Ashirahara and started working the same type of heel outsider type of character that Choshu was working. And from there, Tenryu and Hara would eventually form Revolution. Now, if you remember Yoshiaki Yatsu as a member of Ishingundan, he actually stayed behind in All Japan and turned face. He joined Jumbo Saruta, and the two of them formed the Olympics. Yatsu was also a former Olympian. He competed at the 1976 Summer Olympics in Montreal. The Olympics were a very successful tag, and in June 1988, they captured the PWF World Tag Team Championship and the NWA Tag Team Championship to unify them and create the AJPW World Tag Team Championship. They would go on to hold the World Tag Team belts a total of five times together. The late 80s would see Revolution and the Olympics clashing as the rivalry between Saruta and Tenru got underway. By about 87, you had a big three between Jumbo, Stan Hansen, and Tenru, but Tenru was still considered the underdog of the three. He wanted to beat them both, but the Tenru-Jumbo feud is especially memorable and important to the history of all Japan. You have a couple important things happening in the background in the late 80s as well. Baba decides to pull the plug on the NWA partnership. There's a few reasons for this. Jim Crockett Promotions' financial troubles and their territorial stranglehold over the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, the acquisition of Jim Crockett Promotions by Ted Turner, and the creation of WCW. And you can find more information about this in the Ian Douglas article I mentioned before. But Baba decides to unify all the signals titles in all Japan to create one World Heavyweight title. After a program between Hansen and Tenru, the PWF World Heavyweight Championship and the NWA United National Championship were unified. On April 19, 1989, the United NWA International Heavyweight Champion Jumbo Saruta defeated the PWF World Heavyweight and NWA United National Champion Stan Hansen to unify all three belts into what we know today as the Triple Crown Championship. Following the creation of the Triple Crown, Jumbo and Tenor would engage in a series of matches that are critical watching. Their June 5, 1989 match, which saw Tenor defeating Jumbo for a short-lived run with the Triple Crown, is one of the standouts and truly a predecessor to the decade of wrestling that would be coming around the corner. Tenor was also only the second native wrestler after Baba to pin Jumbo. Stylistically, these matches are just brutal too, and you're seeing another evolution of Jumbo's style. Jumbo's famous knee strikes, which he had been using for a while, have become the star of the show for how accurate and nasty they are. 
these two are just frankly beating the shit out of each other. There's a desperation in the way they work together in these matches with neither wanting to lose to the other as well. And like I've mentioned, these matches laid the framework for the King's Road style of the 90s and truly changed the main event scene of Purasu. So as the late 80s gave way to the early 90s, Tenor leaves to form SWS because he doesn't feel like he's being made to be the star he wants to be. We do talk about this on episode nine as well, so make sure you give that a listen if you haven't already. This leaves Baba in need of new stars. Jumbo is still the ace, but he's about 39 or 40 at this point. So as far as a wrestler goes, he's getting up there in age. Tiger Mask 2, aka Mitsuharu Misawa, unmasks during a tag match on May 14th, 1990, and his star power just explodes. Crowds are incredibly hot for him. Something to note as well is that Misawa was Jumbo's first valet. They were close, and they had a brotherly sort of bond. Misawa learned a lot about the importance of putting on the public appearance of a wrestler from Saruta, and Jumbo did not make Misawa do a whole lot of the normal things rookies would have to do for their seniors. So if you're remembering from before, Jumbo never had to do that either. And it's very different circumstances, but it makes sense that he wouldn't make his valet do it for him either. But this made me think a lot about how Naomichi Marafuji talks about learning the same things from Misawa and having the same experiences from him. So you can see how that was all passed down from Saruta. I love that. In our previous episode in All Japan Factions, we talk a lot about the generational war that breaks out in 1990 between Super Generation Army, a faction consisting of Mitsuhara Misawa, Toshiaki Kawada, Kenta Kobashi, and Tsuyoshi Kikuchi, and the Aces stable, which included Jumbo himself, Masanobu Fuchi, Akira Tawe after he betrayed Super Generation Army, among others. After some tags and back and forth between Misawa and Jumbo, where tension was established between the older established ace and the up-and-coming Misawa, they were booked for a singles match on June 8th, 1990. This match has an extremely interesting story attached to it that explains their remarkable finish. The crowds are so behind Misawa, they're chanting his name before the show even begins in the Nippon Budokan, and Baba's hearing this, and he decides that Misawa is going to be the one going over on a pinfall. He sends a runner to Jumbo's dressing room with that message, and Jumbo sends the runner back, asking if it could be a countout instead, and Baba says, no, it's a pinfall, and Jumbo ultimately went with what Giant Baba was telling him to do, which really speaks to the relationship and the respect between the two of them. Now, As we all know, Misawa does go on to win this match by pinfall, but it's not a completely decisive win. However, it does mark a brand new chapter in All Japan Pro Wrestling. The impact this match had on All Japan and the wrestling world cannot be understated. If you watch the end, Misawa's crying. So are Kobashi and Kawada. This is an incredible feat and step forward for Misawa because it was Jumbo whom he pinned, which made him only the third native wrestler to do so. The feud between Jumbo Omisawa and subsequently Super Generation Army and Sarutagoon is hot and lucrative for the company. We begin to see another evolution of the ace as he becomes just the nastiest and meanest veteran to try to quell this rebellion from these younger, newer stars, hoping to take his crown. Jumbo gives as good as he gets to make it clear that he's not going to give up his position in the company to Misawa or anyone, be it Kawada or Kobashi behind him, without a fight. And it is important to mention that in joining Sarutagoon, Tawe really gets to benefit from being Jumbo's number two rather than Super Generation Army's number four. They do tag together and become tag champions at one point. And I believe that Tawe goes on to say that especially going into his years with Noah, he benefited so much from being able to learn from Saruta how to really properly set up a match. So this period of time for him is just pivotal in teaching him how to really be a professional wrestler. 
Now, Jumbo's offense gets even meaner than it became against 10 roof, you can imagine, in these exchanges with the members of Super Generation Army. And you can see the style begin to change and it's very hard hitting and at times very frankly dangerous looking King's Road style. But Jumbo is making it clear that he's looking to be the bully here. He wants to bully them. He wants to put Misawa and the others in their place. And while the crowd is very much invested in Misawa and Super Generation Army, they love their ace. Jumbo raises his fist and screams, oh, and the crowd does it back with him. And that image of him with his fist in the air is one of the most lasting of that era. Baba's plan all along had been to build to an eventual match between Misawa and Jumbo for the Triple Crown, where Misawa would go over and establish himself as the new ace. Ultimately, Jumbo would go on to hold the Triple Crown two more times between 1989 and 1992, and Misawa and Jumbo would have three more singles matches, with Misawa losing to Jumbo during a subsequent rematch on September 1st, 1990, and taking another loss to Jumbo on April 18th, 1991. In their final singles match on April 2nd, 1992, they would fight to a draw, moving Misawa that much closer back toward a definitive singles win that had eluded him thus far. But that win would never come. Jumbo started to get very sick, and in the summer of 1992, he was diagnosed with hepatitis B. He had been a carrier his whole life through his mother, and had learned about this in August of 1985 when receiving treatment for some minor injuries. Jumbo was an extremely private man, so he never really spoke about his illness publicly or with other wrestlers as far as I know. The exact cause of his illness would be disclosed to the public in 1993. Some of these details do come from Kinstalker, who does a great job of translating parts of a book on Jumbo, but Jumbo was hospitalized on October 31st, 1992, which is actually the same day his second son was born. This was coming off a tour and his liver functions had spiked to 30 times that of a normal person's. He spent many months in the hospital recovering. He consulted a doctor about returning to wrestling and was told that it could only be tag matches, he couldn't work to exhaustion, and to avoid strikes lest his liver or spleen rupture. Baba had reassured Jumbo that he was under no pressure to return because his life was more important, but Baba would accommodate him if he chose to come back. Jumbo did return to the ring in 1993, but from then on, he never worked a full-time schedule again, nor did he have another singles match. He worked six-man comedy matches with Giant Baba, but when he would come back for matches, fans were thrilled to see the ace. While he was hospitalized, he was inspired to pursue a graduate degree from Tsukuba University. In October 1994, he took the entrance exam for the master's course in phys ed and was accepted. He completed his master's thesis in 1996 and graduated in 1997. Jumbo even returned to Chuo, his alma mater, to lecture. From there, he realized his next dream of moving to America for research purposes. He announced his retirement during a press conference on February 20th, 1999, and a retirement ceremony was held at the Nippon Budokan on March 6th. He took a position at Portland State University in Oregon as a professor of sports physiology under the research exchange professorship program. Misawa was one of three people who came to see him off at the airport. Of course, in the background, there's tensions brewing behind the scenes in all Japan between Misawa and Matoko Baba. We talked about the 2000 roster split extensively with Dr. Jonathan Foy on episode six of Kickout. So if you want more details about that, please listen to that episode. But Saruta was on Misawa's side and had offered him his support as things came to a head between him and Matoko post-Giant Baba's death in January of 1999. Not long after arriving in America, Jumbo's health worsened. He had developed liver cancer and cirrhosis of the liver. He wound up back in Japan by the end of the year in search of a liver donor. In Japan, the requirements for a match were really strict. His brother was actually considered a match at first, but in the end, he didn't meet all the requirements and they couldn't go through with the procedure. He went to Australia to try to find a donor in the spring of 2000 and found out while he was there that a donor had been found in the Philippines. 
The surgery was performed at the National Kidney Institute in Quezon City, but during the liver transplant operation, he suffered massive blood loss and went into shock. He passed away on May 13, 2000 from complications during the surgery at 49 years old. He was survived by his wife, Yasuko, and their three sons, Yuji, 14, Ken, 8 years old, and Naoki, 5. Jumbo's death was shocking, and a public ceremony was held on June 18th, and memorial shows were also held. That's not the note I want to end on, though, when talking about Jumbo. So we're going to do some other anecdotes about his life that I think are much better to end on um, because he was a remarkable man. So something I want to share is that Jumbo was a singer and he played the guitar. You'll find a lot of pictures of him um, singing and playing the guitar online as well, but he recorded records as a folk singer. And you can listen to at least two of his songs on YouTube. There's one that's called Don't Say Goodbye and a version of his theme, Rolling Dreamer, featuring his own vocals. He's a wonderful voice as well. I definitely encourage you guys to listen to them. I was very uh, emotional. (laughs) Very dreamy voice indeed. Dreamy, there it is. There's so much wrestling to talk about with Jumbo and we're going to probably end up linking some stuff and maybe we'll do another playlist and there's definitely some other little videos that I want to link but Jumbo Saruta and Bruiser Brody had a feud that is absolutely worth checking out and Jumbo was apparently Brody's favorite opponent even over Anoki whom he also had a very long feud with once uh, Brody went over to New Japan but at one point Baba wanted to make Brody a face and tag with Jumbo for an upcoming real world tag league but Brody was murdered in Puerto Rico in July of 1988 so this never came to fruition. This next thing I want to talk about is actually something that comes from Kinstalker. I had never seen this before I read it. And I think it's incredible because it's really indicative of the type of person that Jumbo was and what he meant to the pillars during the final years of his career. And this comes from Kyohei Wada, a very famous referee from all Japan. Wada claims that towards the end of his full-time run, Jumbo became very strict with Taue. Taue felt that he couldn't keep up with the other pillars but Jumbo said to him, you're just like them, so you better work hard. It's not for me to beat Misawa, it's for you. You do it. During his retirement press conference, when he was discussing his decision to retire from the ring and take up the research and teaching position in Portland, Jumbo talked about how Baba had said to him before that he must take his chances. And he gives this quote that life is about chances and taking the challenges. He is laid to rest at a temple near his parents' home in Yamanashi Prefecture. The inscription on his tombstone reads, life is a challenge. I also wanted to mention that Yuji Saruda, who is Jumbo's eldest son, is very active on social media. He has a Facebook page dedicated to his father's memory, and he also posts lots of pictures and videos of Jumbo on his Twitter and Instagram. He has also done some interviews and podcasts over the years and talked about his father. He has said about Jumbo, he was the friendliest, passionate, and strongest person I've ever met. I was lucky to be his son. Jumbo's older brother, Suniyoshi, owns the grape farm that they grew up on now. It's called Jumbo Suraten. You can visit this farm today, which also includes a museum dedicated to Jumbo. He also sells grapes wholesale, and there is a website that you can visit if you want more information about that. Sadly, they do not ship the grapes internationally. I did look because I was very <laughs> curious, but it's okay. One day we'll go to Japan and we'll uh, sample them out, give a whole review. Exactly. That'll be Absolutely. A great episode. Um, just to wrap up with some of Jumbo's championships and accomplishments. We've gone over some of these, but I mean, his his list of, of accomplishments is extensive. I mean, he was the Triple Crown Heavyweight Champion three times. He had been a NWA International Tag Team Champion nine times. That includes six times with Baba, twice with Tenru, once with Yoshiaki Yatsu. He had been a NWA United National Champion six times. He had been a World Tag Team Champion seven times. That was five times with Yoshiaki Yatsu, once with the, uh, the great Kabuki and once with the Kiritawe. 
he won the champion carnival in 1977, 1980, and 1991. I mean, like just an extensive list of achievements that go on and on and on. He has won an incredible list of Tokyo sports awards as well. He had won wrestler of the year in 83, 84, and, and 91 even. I mean, he was, he was winning well into his career at that point. It's, he's just a remarkable man with a remarkable deep list of accomplishments. Yeah, he really was a remarkable man. He had all of these incredible achievements. And one thing that I find as remarkable is when you were talking about his retirement and talking about life is about chances and taking the challenges, that he still wanted to go out and find a new dream after everything that's happened, after everything he's achieved and everything he faced, he still wanted to push forward and find something else. Yeah, that is something that's really important. And I talk to you about this, about Jumbo all the time, but that he, that he retired and he tried to pursue a new dream and really, he didn't get to do it for very long, but he really tried to pursue almost like a second life after wrestling. And we don't see that a lot in this industry. We see a lot of people linger in this industry for too long. And I think sometimes people's I think sometimes people's legacies get maybe a little tarnished because we end up seeing people that really don't need to be wrestling anymore, just stay a little too long. And it's, it gets kind of not sad in a way that, it, that it is negative, but sad in a way that makes you feel bad that they still have to do this when they, do, when they shouldn't have to be doing it. And, and there's a lot of reasons why wrestlers stay too long. Sometimes it's that they, that they just can't, and that that's a whole other issue. <laughs> they just can't give it up. And sometimes it's for financial reasons. This is not a, a, like always a, a very stable career. And sometimes they need to continue making appearances in order to make ends meet. And, you know, there's people that just have to stay and kind of work these opening matches for the duration of their careers. But with, with Ceruto, what's remarkable about him is that his legacy is so intact because he left sort of you know, he did work the six months throughout the later years of his career, but he wasn't there very often, you know, in, in, from 93 on, he kind of just came in for these very brief stints. So his legacy is so intact. And, and then he got to really retire definitively. He wasn't going to come back and pursue this, this second life after wrestling. And it just makes me so sad that this couldn't be, um, something that worked out for him and something that he could really demonstrate worked for him. Because I think that, um, and I think about this a lot because a lot of my favorite wrestlers are are, uh, older (laughs) and um, (laughs) I often worry about what the end of their careers is going to look like. And I don't want them to languish in six man tags or in the opening tags. I don't know. I don't don't think I want to see that as much as I know that wrestling will change for me when certain people retire, I, I would actually rather them retire and then pursue other dreams, pursue things outside of wrestling. Don't linger in this industry when you don't need to. And I think that it's just incredibly sad that Jumbo did not get to live that second dream a little longer. I think that he could have been an amazing example to other wrestlers in in having been able to do that, but it is still extraordinary that he did that. He was a brilliant man. He was so smart and so driven. So yeah, he, he, he is incredible. And I, I think that, um, that he was able to do this at all for as long as he got to do it is still extraordinary and still an accomplishment. So let's talk a little bit about Jumbo's legacy. I know you talked a little bit about his legacy in a very literal sense, his uh, son, and then of course his family with the orchard, but let's talk about his footprints, his impact on pro wrestling, on Puro that we see even today. 
And what stuck out to me the most and what was sort of your pitch for this episode was how you can see Masawa's feud with Jumbo Saruta echoing in Tanahashi and Okada's legendary New Japan feud. Yeah, and that's not something I knew right away, but Tanahashi and Okada's feud is probably the first feud in Puro that really made an impact on me because when I was coming into being a fan, that feud was still hot. You know, like that feud was not resolved. So it was a very dominant feud in New Japan. And then it was years later when I was really starting to work through All Japan, King's Road, really starting to understand Misawa and understand Jumbo Saruta that I realized I was looking at something that that to me was very similar. And, And I think that realizing the connection between the two really left an impression on me because time is a flat circle, you know, all these things sort of come back. Right. And the Jumbo Misawa feud changed wrestling. So it doesn't surprise me at all that in a lot of these, you know, more contemporary feuds we're we're seeing the echoes of that. And it was really interesting to think about that contextualized in a feud happening in a completely different company with two, you know, two very, and I think different wrestlers as well from Jumbo Omisawa. In some ways they can be very different feuds, but there's still those hallmarks there that make them remarkably similar. Absolutely. The way that I described it, and I've really been sort of nursing on this metaphor is that it's almost like a Hollywood rendition of a classic fairy tale, a classic folk tale. They're sort of taking it and expanding it out, especially with this New Japan feud. Specifically, if you look at, and we watch through all the matches, if you look at the February 12th, 2012 match, which is the infamous Rainmaker shock, Okada, you know, bamboozled Tanahashi by having a bad match at Wrestle Kingdom, which, you know, is nothing that Masawa had done. Um, he, he would never know. He, he really uh, won in a very different way. But you still have some notes to Jumbo and Masawa's first match. You see Jumbo coming in as sort of an almost arrogant ace. He's very confident. He's very sure of himself. He's very playing to the crowd. He's not as focused on Masawa. And Masawa really ends up taking advantage. He has a lot in his own toolbox. He's fighting a little bit of a different style than Jumbo might have expected, might be used to with that junior heavyweight sort of influence. And then you have Tanahashi and Okada and Tanahashi is so arrogant here. He is just all in just the ace. He's the shining, you know, ace who just can't be beat. And he knows it and he feels it. And Okada comes at him, completely blindsides him. So you see a lot of those echoes there. And that's exactly what I think you're getting at is that, no, they're not the same, you know, wrestlers, but it very much is the same groundwork of the feud. And I think Jumbo really, really started that. Like you said, he was the first ace in a traditional sense. And now we're seeing how that comes into play. Yeah. And it's interesting how in that first match with Okada and Tanahashi, the similarity is that Okada gets that win, right? That shock win over um, Tanahashi. But I actually think in some ways that Okada is more similar in some regards to, to Jumbo right off the bat, right? Because he's coming in 
<laughs> he's coming in having, you know, gone from being a rookie almost like straight to, and, and like Okada had like a rookie period. He like, he had, he struggled a little bit. bit. He, yeah. he went all over the place. He had his excursion. He, he went to TNA. Like he had some, he had some issues <laughs> before he was able to come back and be the rainmaker, but he, it felt like he was sort of hot shotted from like that, like the, that little bit of rookiedom, like straight to rainmaker, straight to beating Tanahashi, which people did not like. Um, this was not like, you know, a warm sort of welcome when he did this. It's very different from what Masawa, what Masawa received when he beat Saruta, right? So there, but there is that similarity in that Jumbo wasn't well received either coming in and being positioned as like this new ace, right? Like he struggled a little bit as well. So there's an interesting similarity there. And Okada's not really like the Masawa in that way. He's kind of almost echoing a little bit of Jumbo's sort of interesting path forward to ace them in that match yeah to begin they're almost both the jumbo uh, they're they're almost both the jumbo saruta in this feud to begin with and it doesn't stay that way it does evolve uh, as we watch the feud where we go in with their first let's say their first wrestle kingdom main event uh january 4th 2013 okada had won the g1 in his very first try which once again sort of has that echo of Jumbo just winning all the time, just being the perfect wrestler. But you're beginning to see Okada earn his title shots. So he's starting to come around. And um, this is where I would say the Hollywood adaptation kind of comes in. You're seeing New Japan being able to book this feud with all the time in the world. Whereas Baba sort of booked this feud very, very quickly. Um, and never ended up being able to finish it, where New Japan sort of takes it in a very spiritual successor kind of way and eventually does ride it out to the logical conclusion that Jumbo and Misawa um, weren't able to have. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But this match particularly becomes a storyline of um, experience, all of Tanahashi's experiences as the ace versus all of Okada's talents, all of that natural ability. At this point, they're still sort of the jumbo, but you can sort of see where the jumbo versus Masawa storyline begins to take hold. So that leads us into probably my favorite match of the Tanahashi Okada feud. And it corresponds with my favorite match of the jumbo Masawa a feud and that would be king of pro wrestling october 14th 2013 and this is where and i quote what i said was tanahashi enters the jumbo zone and he becomes so mean he becomes this cruel and crafty veteran who's willing to do whatever it takes to hold on to that title of ace and remain on top of the company and you begin to see that with jumbo in that second match as well where he just beats down Masawa. It was so cool. I popped so hard. That was my first time, I think, seeing that match. I don't remember having seen it before. I just was absolutely blown away. And then it had a lot of echoes to Tanahashi sort of baiting Okada in with this fake knee injury and then popping up and doing the air guitar. The crowd completely reverses themselves completely reverses themselves. And that's when it kicks in. That's when you really begin to see it where Tanahashi has become the Jumbo Saruta of the feud 100%. And the crowd has begun to shift behind their upcoming ace and begun to slowly accept him as their upcoming ace. 
in Kazuchika Okada. He is every bit the baby face here. And Tanahashi begins to grow desperate as he's feeling his place in the company slide away. And it's it's just a really remarkable match. But I think that's really where the uh, the movie, if you were, if we were to continue the metaphor, begins to carry the same notes. Oh yeah, you're completely correct. And what becomes so interesting is that you have the hallmarks of Tanahashi does not want to be give up his acedom to this up and coming Kazuchika Okada. But what's really interesting too is that Okada has, you know, he's gotten the belt right away from Tanahashi, right? So that's already off the table. Whereas with Misawa and Jumbo, that's what they were chasing and they and that eluded them. New Japan like immediately takes that off the table right away. So like, that's, a, that's not the point of Okada and Tanahashi's feud at all. It really does become more about the positioning of who is the ace in the company. Yeah, exactly. That's really well said. It's not actually about the belt. Uh, the belt is there. In this case, Okada actually holds on to the belt. And Tanahashi swore before this match that he would never challenge for the IWGP heavyweight belt ever again. It was very dramatic. And, and he does hold true to that promise for a little while. He ends up challenging Shinsuke Nakamura for the IWGP Intercontinental belt. And that match ends up being the bigger match, the more exciting match compared to Okada versus Tetsuya Naito, in which Naito had won the G1 and won his right to challenge at Wrestle Kingdom. You guys, most of you know this story, but there was a fan poll, not for Jumbo Saruta's name, but in this case, for the main event of Wrestle Kingdom. And that's really where a lot of the story comes down to as well, as it comes down to the dome. Tanahashi still main evented the dome against Nakamura. And Okada, even though he had the bigger belt, didn't because Tanahashi was still the ace. Tanahashi still had what Okada was still striving for. And that's what takes us into January 4th, 2015, Tanahashi versus Okada. This is the one where Okada cries, (laughs) which is, I was very excited to go into this match and watch it. I was like, oh, this is the one where he cries. And uh, boy, is it worth it. Boy, howdy. Um, he, you get the sense that Okada can't focus when he's emotional, where Tanahashi really owns Wrestle Kingdom and owns that big stage in every single way. And he just always delivers. And Okada could be a thorn in Tanahashi's side all he wants, but Tanahashi is still the ace. And he proved that in this match and he was still on top of the company. And to me, this is a very good parallel to that third match Mm -hmm. of Misawa and Jumbo, where you just really felt that Misawa was, was reaching, was chasing, was almost there, just getting a little bit closer every single time, but couldn't quite get it. And uh, this match is sort of that climax almost. And from there, you're going to get the resolution that Misawa and Jumbo couldn't quite get. Yeah, absolutely. The third Misawa Jumbo of that particular series is definitely a good parallel for that. And really like the, the win is so defi- that match is interesting. Cause when we watched it again, I thought the second Jumbo Masawa from that series was my favorite, but then in watching that one again with you, 
I feel like the third one is now my favorite. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I was going to ask. I was really curious. I was going to wait and ask, but um, I it got my heart rate up. Like I really, really was um, adrenaline was pumping in that match a little bit more than the second match. So I think if you are looking for just a really exciting, thrilling, almost scary match, um, I could definitely see that one tipping the scales for yeah. me just watching Jumbo just go full mean veteran is just so rewarding, just beating the brakes off Masawa. Um, but well, it's yeah. So that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's so definitive. And that word that you brought up that Tanahashi owns Wrestle Kingdom. Oh yeah. There's nothing about like, they, they ran the Nippon Budokan all the time. So there wasn't any kind of like ownership over <laughs> any yeah, particular there's, place. There's a I, difference I there. For, oh, for, um, sure. for, for all Japan at that time between Misawa and Jumbo. But I think that, Jumbo still owned the, the main event scene, you know, like that was still like Jumbo still had ownership there. And he really demonstrates that at the end of that match, he gets up on the ropes twice and does the, oh, into the crowd and the crowd's doing it with him. And I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary visual and the crowd is so with him. And I mean, this crowd, like I told, I think I said this to you when we were watching it, this crowd, if Misawa had won that, the crowd would have went ballistic. Like they would just oh, would have sure. come unglued, but they're just as unglued for the ace winning. Jumbo still owns that that scene. It's still Jumbo's company. It's still Jumbo's All Japan, even with Misawa coming up behind him. So the concept of ownership and that parallel to the to that particular Tanahashi Okada match and this particular Misawa and Jumbo match, it, that really does work, I think, very well. Absolutely. And then that leads us into one year later, we get that conclusion that I kept saying, you know, had alluded. Um, sadly, Masawa and Jumbo, you get it with Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kazuchika Okada, January 4th, 2016. Uh, this match made me cry. <laughs> it is absolutely that storybook finish that Masawa would have had. He would have defeated Jumbo, gone over for the belt, and gotten that huge moment of, yes, I am fully, finally, and solidified as the ace of this company. And that's what you see in Okada. He wins in this brutal, incredible match and finally, finally defeats Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom in the Tokyo Dome, which like I said, it's not even about the belt at this point. It's about that title of ace. And to uh, Masawa, the belt would have been the representation of that ace dumb. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but that's the sense that I got. Whereas in this case, it's beating Tanahashi at the dome. Yeah. Yeah. You've got that down. Yeah. It's a shame because I, the, the final Misawa jumbo single ends in a draw, right? Yeah. And you're, you know, the hope would have been from there. Jumbo really felt he had more time. He felt like he had a couple more years. He knew that he knew he was sick and he knew that he didn't have long, but he thought he had way more time than he did. It's just a shame that it happened how it did because when you watch the Okada Tanahashi feud to its conclusion, you can think of all the sort of like possibilities for how we could have seen Misawa and Jumbo's feud end. And it's a shame. It really is. It's sad. It is. It is absolutely a shame. And, you know, Tanahashi and Okada are blessed to have continued their feud even from this point on, which is, you know, great. But to me, this is absolutely sort of that conclusion, that sort of feeling of spiritual successor. Like, yes, this is, and I almost, it made me feel good to sort of watch that ending with uh, Masawa and Jumbo in mind. To me, it's almost feels like a very fitting tribute to uh, Jumbo Saruda in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. I think that 
a feud like this in, in pro wrestling can get taken to such a natural conclusion and really end in such a satisfying way. I mean, that is in its way a good tribute. Absolutely. A lot of, and you mentioned this with Jumbo talking to Tawe, where he's like, that's not for my job to do. You're the one to beat Masawa. That's, that's for you. And um, that sort of impresses how important it was for Jumbo to sort of continue that cycle, continue those stories. So um, get those stories to those natural conclusions. So seeing this as well, seeing this um, Jumbo Masawa kind of story taking root to that conclusion is just the heart of pro wrestling, but it's also very much the heart of Jumbo Saruta. And I really love that. So the second feud is actually even more contemporary than uh, Tanahashi and Okada, and that would be Junakiyama versus Kanosuke Takeshita happened recently in the past couple of years in DDT. And I just want to say too, before we jump into that, there is like some little background to provide on at least Akiyama. Akiyama, when he debuted for All Japan, he became a valet for Jumbo Saruta and Akiyama was really considered to be like the next Jumbo Saruta, the up and coming Jumbo Saruta, because he was kind of built similar to Saruta. And, you know, we'll go on to talk about some of the similarities in terms of the movesets to Saruta, but he had that connection to Jumbo. Starting out in All Japan, he was in Sarutagun initially. He completed his trials in Sarutagun. He only left Sarutagun really when Jumbo got sick and Sarutagun sort of dissolved. And then they moved Kawada off of Super Generation Army to work with Tawe and they formed Holy Demon Army. That shifted a bunch of things around. And then Akiyama wound up going over to Super Generation Army. So that's how that kind of worked out for him. But initially he was working under Jumbo Saruta as um, his valet and working in Sarutagun. And yeah, that's really important to note that he has that direct line um, to those techniques, which we'll probably touch on just a moment with Takesha, because that is very, very important. And also a little bit of background as well is Takesha has some notes of that super rookie ace as well, where he is sort of brought into the company and it's not as prevalent as Okada. He's a lot more accepted. Um, to begin with than Okada was, but he is, he's very successful from the very beginning. His debut was a singles match with El Generico. Like he got a big um, debut, whereas other men, other people are in six men, you know, are debuting in the opening matches. No, he's, he's very much presented as being something very important to the company. So you see a little bit of jumbo in him in that, and you see a, a little bit of jumbo in him as well. So unlike Tanahashi Okada, where there were 15 singles matches to sort of pick through to find um, the big story beats, this one only has three and they go very, very quickly. So where Tanahashi and Okada, and I described this as uh, they had all this time in the world to tell this story and extended it out over a course of many years. Uh, DDT books very quickly for the most part. And they told the story from November 3rd, 2020 to August 21st, 2021. It went very, very quick, but you still get a lot of those emotional beats of this mean veteran taking on this young ace who 
was more or less considered the ace of the company. You still have a lot of Hiroshima, and it can be argued that Hiroshima plays a jumbo role as well in his own feud with Takeshita. I think that's really important. You see it all over. You see it in every company, this old ace, you know, taking on the younger ace. And again, it's those footprints, it's those remakes. Uh, time is a flat circle. It's all that. And that's incredible. But in this case, you get this outside ace coming in this old mean veteran with this direct line to Jumbo Saruta, and he's taking on Takeshita. And that brings us to our very first match with them. It was a special singles match, Junakiyama versus Konosuke Takeshita at Ultimate Party, November 3rd, 2020. A special singles match between Junakiyama and Konosuke Takeshita. So this is really interesting because Akiyama wins this one. And what really the story here is Akiyama really wanted to test out the up and coming ace of DDT and see what he had. Takesha comes at Akiyama with everything he has, but it's just not enough. It's like we entirely skipped the first step of the Masawa Jumbo storyline and went straight for the second match. And I think that's really significant here in that Akiyama is an outsider. So you don't really have that desperation to hang on to the company. So you don't have that need for the young ace to beat the old ace as like a threat, as an up and coming threat. Instead, Akiyama is this jumbo character who's almost entirely a litmus test for Takeshita to see if he is ready to take on the company. However, you still get those notes. Jumbo is mean and cruel. He's this veteran who's experienced and Akiyama is that in every single step of this match. This match is almost haunting because of its status as a pandemic era match. The crowd is dead silent in parts that are just absolutely scary. And they're really, really cool to see that Takeshita is struggling against Akiyama. It's almost a little bit heartbreaking. This match is just really good. It made the shortlist for Tospo's 2020 match of the year. And I thought that was really cool. And then, um, Osha, I think you mentioned that this feud is almost in reverse where you have these, uh, losses that lead to a win rather than a win that leads to losses that ultimately would have led to a win. What I also want to point out is that you said that Akiyama is an outsider. So he's very different right off the bat than, than Jumbo just from that point of view. But this really becomes about everything that Akiyama represents, right? Because just by being June Akiyama, he is someone that Takeshita has to prove himself against and has to overcome. So, and that's the same thing with Jumbo. I mean, every Misawa's win over Jumbo was such a big deal because Jumbo represented something, right? Jumbo Saruta was almost, you know, bigger than just being a person. He was this concept, right? And I think that's sort of what it was for Takeshita going up against Akiyama as well. So you can really get a sense of the weight of legacy here and what that means to Takeshita in the way that it would have meant to Misawa in going up against Jumbo. It's the same sort of concept. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that Akiyama doesn't really need to be the ace of DDT because he's kind of just the ace of wrestling at large in this point. He's just a representation of something larger than himself. And of course he does love DDT and his whole story with the belt after he wins the belt becomes him coming into DDT as his own and becoming a full roster member. But in this storyline specifically, it very much is Akiyama is 
a representation of Kuroresu. And he's testing, perhaps I was a little premature in saying that he's testing Takeshi to see if he could take over the company. In a lot of ways, he's testing Takeshi to see if he can take on the future of wrestling. It's a really big storyline and it's, that's really cool. I'm glad you brought that up. So speaking of premature, we have their next match, which is going to be the finals of the Dio Grand Prix. And that's going to be December 27th, 2020, just under two months after their first match. And this is really, really flash booking to take this huge singles match that again was nominated for Tokyo Sports Match of the Year. Like it was a huge, really good well-acclaimed match. And then you're already going to book it again for the finals of your tournament, which is a great choice in a lot of ways. I actually sat on this after you mentioned how weird that was. Um, I really thought about it in a lot of ways. It really calls back to that third match, um, that decisive match, if you will. And, you know, the same uh, 2015 Wrestle Kingdom Tanahashi Okada match where Tanahashi establishes, this is my playing field. And where Jumbo establishes, this is my company. Akiyama is establishing that, no, you are jumping the gun. You're too, you're premature to challenge me again. You are not ready to defeat me. And Takeshita takes this really hard. He takes it so hard that he basically goes through this whole like tragedy arc of him trying to find himself again. I really love this story arc where he creates his own little found family in Sonic Amina and he goes on this big old excursion where he fights two matches on YouTube in AEW and he comes back a changed man. But um, he, he takes it very, very personally that he just got this reminder that he is not ready. He is still not the ace. He is not the future, which is meant to be his moniker. I think it's really nice that because, and it's, it's extraordinary that this feud happens in such a short period of time, but it's amazing that what DDT was able to pack into such a short period of time, because you do get this like full arc of Takeshita coming to terms with himself and trying to figure out who he is and who he needs to be to not only defeat Akiyama, but to be the person the company needs him to be. And it's sort of amazing that they did this in such a short period of time. And yeah, I think when you're thinking about for going back to Misawa and Jumbo's feud, it's a very different time period. It's very different types of booking. So you're not necessarily getting that kind of storytelling from that. So there's differences in that, but it's really in just the way that you know DDT books its feuds and has booked things for Takeshita. It's nice that in this, in this version of that feud, we get something like that. It makes you really feel sympathetic and want to get behind Takeshita in this feud as well. Yeah. And they've had sort of ace building feuds. I mean, Takeshita's had the belt, you know, several times before. And um, it's, they've had these ace building feuds for him, but nothing of this caliber. And again, that goes back to what we're talking about with what Akiyama really represents, but it does, it makes him very sympathetic where you could easily be like, well, Takeshita's the ace. Of course, he's going to win the belt eventually. But no, actually the way that they put this feud and built this feud and put these two matches right next to each other, you end up feeling really bad for Takeshita and you end up really wanting to see him get to that singles match. How is he going to get there? And we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, But you want to see him succeed eventually. And that match ends up being really, really rewarding, which leads us into that final match 
And that leads us to their big match at DDT Wrestle Peter Pan 2021 on August 21st. So I want to lead into this match with, I know I mentioned the start of his own, his new faction and uh, his little excursion to AEW, but also what led up to this match was him winning the King of DDD tournament. And I really, really love this tournament run. It was a really, really great run, but it was all about building Takeshita to this specific match. He spent the whole tournament developing his own little uh, submission just to take on Akiyama. He was very vocal that it was all for Akiyama, but he also spent every single match scouting the opponent extremely carefully. He went in with a plan and he executed the plan. Like I said, really good tournament run, but the purpose of this is that you feel him just looking straight ahead and going straight towards Akiyama. It is all about Akiyama. It's not even so much about the belt, which again, none of these feuds are. And that's where you really feel the Jumbo and Misawa come in. It's not about the belt. It's about something larger than themselves. And that's what brings us to this incredible match at Wrestle Peter Pan. Really great outdoor match. You know, the sun is already set on them. It's just a wonderful match. And the ending is so beautiful. You have Takeshita finally tapping out, not even pinning him, tapping out Akiyama. And that's really says something that's beyond almost sort of think about um, that pinfall decision for Masawa and Jumbo, where that's really decisive, especially back in those days where those wonky finishes are a lot more common. It's almost like a parallel to that, where tapping out, there is nothing you can say there. That is decisive. That is the end of it. And Takesha won. Takeshita executed his plan and he won. And then he's surrounded by his friends. They all hug him. It's wonderful. Takeshita's crying. And you get the sense that, yes, he's been the baby ace. He's been accepted as, you know, the upcoming ace, as the future. But this has become a lot more to him. Taking on Akiyama has become something beyond DDT and just beyond himself. He is the ace. He is the future. It's very beautiful. It's very decisive. It is. It's, it's again, it's, it's what eluded Misawa and, and Jumbo, right? That definitive, perfect ending to a great feud. And in that way, it's, it's really wonderful to see. And there's so much more at play, even between Akiyama and Takeshita, because there's, you know, there's so much stuff going on in the background that has nothing to do with kayfabe and has nothing to do with the feud, but everything to do with Akiyama being in the dojo training people for DDT training Takeshita and giving Takeshita Jumbo's knee and absolutely training uh, the DDT dojo in Jumbo's techniques and Baba's techniques. And that's really extraordinary and is another part of Jumbo's legacy in today's Parasu that we find really important is that it's just another way for Jumbo to live on through the next generation generations of wrestlers because you also have Yoshinari Ogawa and Noah doing the same and it's a it's a beautiful thing there's some really great pictures now of Akiyama working with Takeshita and working on that knee 
And then we know now that, you know, fast forward to today, we know that Takeshita is going to AEW and Akiyama recently tweeted to <laughs> Takeshita to use the knee while he's there. And it's such a, you know, it's such a wonderful thing because it's just a way that Jumbo gets to live on through this newer generation of wrestlers that are going out into the world. And it's a little bit of Jumbo that gets to, I don't know, maybe show up on Dynamite this coming week. So we'll okay. see, but yeah. that's that's sort of the, the beautiful thing is that there's, there's many ways in in Akiyama being in DDT and, and through Takeshita and, and through Akiyama's presence and the way that he teaches that Jumbo gets to live through all of this, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, I really could not have said it better myself. I was really hoping to uh, get to that knee uh, and you said it incredibly beautiful. He's just, he's living on and he will continue to live on in Pororesu. And I think that is a very fitting legacy for Tommy Saruda. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. We are so grateful for all of your content support and enthusiasm. Please don't forget to subscribe or follow us on Apple or Spotify. We'll be doing a giveaway once we hit 100 followers on Spotify. So look out for details on that via our Twitter page. If you could leave us a five-star review on your platform of choice, that would be extremely helpful as we try to grow Kickout. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at Kickout299. And then you can find me, Rachel at Milky Star. That's M I I K Y Star. And you can find Alicia at Shiranui Kai with two eyes. Please check out our blog, kickout299.wordpress.com. You can find an array of content on there. And our email is kickoutat299 at gmail.com. Please submit us questions and feedback there. And if you have an interest in submitting a pitch for the blogger podcast, you can do so there as well. Our next episode is going to be our New Japan Pro Wrestling Factions episode with Thistle. That's going to drop on Tuesday, May 10th. And we have another very special deep dive episode into Keiji Muto dropping on May 24th. We've got some really, really great guests, and we're excited to announce that very soon. As always, make sure you follow our Twitter to see what else we have planned for coming episodes and projects. Thank you all again so much, and we will talk to you soon.